Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Over the past four plus decades, sound editor Mark Mangini has worked with some of the biggest names in the business on some of the highest profile projects of our time. With over 125 film credits to his name, he's done everything from Aladdin to The Fifth Element to winning an Oscar for Mad Max Fury Road and most recently doing the sound editing work on Blade Runner 2049. Recently, Jamie and I were able to sit down with Mark and go through his storied career and uncover some of the secrets behind the most memorable soundscapes in this film, and in my opinion, some of the most memorable soundscapes in recent film history. This is Patrick, and you're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast's interview with Mark Mangini. So first, I wanted to talk a little bit about the about the working process with Denny. I know I've read a little bit about that, but um, what was what was interesting or unique about this uh, for you? What was the process with Denny like? It was really great because he's one of those rare directors, like and I'm going to compare him to two other greats like Luc Besson and um, George Miller, who surround themselves with great artisans in every department and then set them free to do what they want to do and kind of follow their instincts. And that uh, maybe it's, maybe it's, it's odd to me, but uh, I mean, it may not seem odd to you, but it's odd to me to get that kind of creative freedom. He sent me off to just design. In fact, his first words to me in our first spotting session were, um, I want you to compose with sound. I want, he wanted me to think, like the composer and build sound scapes, if you will, much like the first film that were more musical and sort of atmospheric that created mood and weren't diegetic. They weren't attached to anything that you see on screen sequence. So this really freed me to use my musical skills and I, I too am a musician and a composer as well. And it allowed me to think more structurally in terms of sound the way a composer would in terms of sort of movements and themes and and uh and emotion in sound so can, can you can you can you elaborate on that a little bit about using sound as like a compositional tool Um, sure. So the, the very first composition I created was called Kay's Journey. I wanted to find a sound that identified with his loneliness and his uh, need to connect with his roots. He, you know, he's on this journey to find Deckard and to find out who he really is because he's not quite sure. And so in that early phase of design slash composition work, I just started playing around with textures I like, and one that I fell on was a series of um, bell chimes that I found really evocative, and I, I built into this, um, I suppose it's, I don't know what, mo it's a modal progression of chimes, 
that I found really haunting. And we played those sounds in his walk through the desert and in the casino, as well as in the church basement when he meets Frasia. And I just found we we actually had used those thematically in other areas of the other areas of the film, but that damn talented Ben Walfish found other ways <laughs> uh, to do something even better with the score. But uh, Denis really responded to that approach of of creating these kind of you know their their musical atmospheres. They don't really have a melody, kinda. I and mean, if you listen, you actually could find one. Um, and Denis really responded to that. He liked the idea of that universe, the Blade Runner universe, being inhabited by sounds that we, where from which we don't know where they're coming from. But it's the sound of the Blade Runner universe, and it starts life in our dissection of the first film. Um, we had the opportunity to listen to the stems, which means the separations of sound, the dialogue, the music, and the sound effects. Um, individually. And what we discovered is that Vangelis had done this self-same approach to the film. He had created these musical textures or atmospheres that play throughout the film, the most notable uh, being in uh, Wallace Corporation and in Deckard's apartment. And you, I, I would guess, although you guys are experts, that yeah, in, when listening to the first film, you'd think the sound designer made those. But no, in fact, mm -hmm. Um, Vangelis had created these kind of atmospheric sounds that are Blade Runnery, tinkly and chimey, and and uh, and also using the infamous CS80. Uh, and we thought, okay, that's our way into Blade Runner 2049. We're not going to rip off Vangelis, and in fact, we did not use a single sound from the first film. No, but nothing we used at it, all. Not not a single sound. So even even a little. Well, I was wondering, there's a, there's a moment there's, in the hydroponics stuff in Deckard's apartment in, uh, in the casino where there's this very specific sound cue that... that oh, we you like. caught me! Oh, that's the Easter egg! <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, it was, I was, I was, it's, it's this, it, I'll give you the history of that. But it's so subtle because Denis, he liked the idea of the two Deckard's apartments, the first film and the second film, because that is indeed the sound that Ben Burt made that was actually made for the Death Star for the first Star Wars that Terry Rawlings, the film editor from Blade, the first Blade Runner, stole for Alien, put it in Alien, and then repurposed it for Blade Runner 1. And we always identified that sound as... So, you, yeah, you know, that's something Ben had made for the first Star Wars, ended up in a the first Alien, ended up in first Blade Runner, and we thought we need to pay homage to it. It's the one sound, and it's so wow. slow, but you caught that. Um, um, congrats. <laughs> well, so, but the reason we caught that, and Jamie did as well, is because we're, we're if there's anything we're possibly nerdier about than Blade Runner, uh, it's Alien. It's a pretty close toss-up between the two. And <laughs> one of my kind of relaxation tracks is just playing the Nostromo ambiance to go to sleep sometimes. And it's <laughs> such a specific sound, and such a beautiful sound. So yeah. as soon as it happened, yeah. So, so you didn't recycle in any real way any material from the original film. It was a totally new soundscape. In any real or unreal way, we didn't use a single sound as a source for anything. Um, we used it as inspiration, but recreated. I all, to me, one of the other signatures of the first film are those deep, like timpani booms that Vangelis made that opened the film. If you remember, yes, over the eye yes. and uh, 
the LA, the nighttime cityscape with the fire shooting up. And um, we didn't have great audio on that. Uh, so uh, Ron Bartlett and I made newer versions of that. We made 7.1 and Atmos versions of those giant kind of theater, you know, rattling uh, booms, which we well, love. So, that- so one of those moments, if correct me if I'm wrong, is something that I wanted to ask you about, actually, which is, to my mind, the most sort of just incredibly beautiful part of the whole film, which is when Kay leaves the spinner in Las Vegas and he's walking in the desert and it's completely absent of any sound except, like there's nothing yeah. diegetic, there's no foley, there's just this gigantic boom. And you yeah. hear it on uh, on surrounds, you know, I tried to see it on as many different surround systems as I could. And, yeah. uh, and I was sitting in an Atmos theater and it was like, I mean, it felt like my heart pumped out of my chest. It was so loud. And so is that a moment? Well, A, is that what you're talking about? And yes. B, okay, that is. And, and so a moment like that, that was the decision made by the sound department, not the music department. Well, it's actually, uh, there's a fun story about that if you give me about a minute to tell it. Yeah. One more kiss, Okay, so um, I I loved these sounds. It was one of the first sounds I made was the reproduction of those booms. And I settled on this idea of repurposing them throughout the film as what I call chapter markers. We'd use them as transitions to new scenes. So I laid up 10 or 12 of them throughout the movie. That's not the only place you hear those booms. Um, And Denis really liked it. And in fact, when you hit that first orange shot in Las Vegas with Kay walking, I put one there and then I put one on the B moment to signal there's a transition here, something different is happening. So those lived in the mix for many, many, many months um, until Ben Walfish came on. And as you may or may not know, Ben came on and Hans Zimmer came on very late in the process. Um, And uh, in our second temp mix, Ben gave us a mock-up of the score and Denis, and he had also mimicked the booms at those exact same chapter marker points. So we thought, okay, great. You don't need my booms. You got your, your cool thing. And the score was working pretty well until the, like the last day of the final mix. And um, Denis said to me, Mark, the booms need to be bigger. And I thought, <laughs> this, I thought this is my spinal tap moment. You know, how, do we, how do we make these go to 11? So I sent Ron Bartlett, <laughs> our, our dialogue mixer, who's a drummer. And I said, Ron, we got to go over the top. Give me some bigger booms. Let's hit this hard. And so Ron recorded these gorgeous, fresh 192 kilohertz, 24-bit drum booms, put them in the movie. And as he's doing that, he's, Denis is at the console with us. And Ron has to sort of stop and do a kind of nerdy editing thing, like cut them in right on the shots. So to do that, he has to listen to them and take out all the other sound, the music and you know everything else. And Denis heard that and he said, wait a minute, what are you doing? Ron said, I'm just putting the booms in. And he said, can you just play that? Just play me the booms. So Ron went back and he said, take out the music. He played and he, Ron played it. And we all had the reaction you had, which was, Holy fuck, that is so effective. That oh, huge, dynamic, deep, quiet, all of a sudden, 
we had found the narrative structure of that scene. All along, we were trying to oversell it with music to kind of, kind of, you know, like strangle emotion out of the scene, and you didn't need it. And so it, it just goes to show when you have a, a really sensitive director, director, he saw a moment happen right in front of his eyes, and he jumped on it and said, "That's the direction we're going in." So that and happened said, in a moment. That happened in a moment at the that was final just a response. Set. Wow. It was just spot as an accident because, to use a technical term, Ron had soloed the booms on the mixing console so that everything else muted. So the, there was actually a very, very light air there, and there was super, super subtle little sounds of rebar twisting for the fallen head. But he took everything out, and all of a sudden it was this beautiful, stark moment of nothingness. Wow. Oh my God! That's so because it's such a trans. It's the sort of moment that feels like it could not have arisen pre-planned. It's because it's it's a strange. And this is something I want to talk about too. It's a strange choice, right? It's something. It's something atypical. It's something that had to have been arrived at through like some sort of a spontaneous artistic response to stimuli. And you're and you're watching it, and something. It's 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 not what you would think as a sound designer would happen in that moment. And I'm wondering something that I'm, I'm curious about. I feel Let like me comment on that quickly yeah, because yeah, I'll yeah. give you an important piece of information about just that. Um, one of the many things that makes working with Denis different than other directors is that he doesn't get in, he doesn't get lost in the weeds and he doesn't delve in granularity. Uh, most directors, you're in the final mix, you play the scene, and they give you 15 notes. They, they uh, you know, that third footstep is too loud. I want to hear more sand. Uh, uh, the wind is too loud. Denis never does that. Denis comes from a place of emotion. He'll always say first, you know, uh, after watching that, that scene made me feel lonely, and I wanted to feel more lonely. He'll never give you granular notes on how to get there. He's assuming that we, like he, as an artist, can connect to the emotion and figure out the right solution to it. And that was one of those moments. That's really wow. beautiful, actually. That's, uh, that's fantastic to hear that. You feel that in his, in his, uh, in his projects. You really do. He's a very um, uh, uh, empathetic director. He's such a great actor's director. He's such a great story director. You know, he, here he's made, you know, the ultimate kind of science fiction geek movie with technology everywhere, but it's always grounded by characters and story arc and, you know, the important stuff that makes movies great. Right. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, um, you were about to ask a question. I have a question, too, really quick. Um, there's a sound when Kay is in the spinner and he's headed back to L.A. from the beginning, and you hear it You hear it then, and then when you, we meet Kay later and he's at the food court, it sounds like a car revving its engine. And it's, very, it's a very Los Angeles sound. Living out in L.A., I hear that all the time, and it's loud. And I'm curious how you guys arrived at that. Uh, it was really easy. We just called Ben Walfish and said, you do it. <laughs> that is actually, in the score, um, Denis nicknamed it the motorcycle. Is that wah, 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 wah. Yeah, that's a, a very cool sound Ben made in a program called Zebra that we all love and has become a signature of sound of the movie. Uh, 
sadly, I, I get too much credit for that because no one thinks the composer made it, but he did. Well, and that's something yeah. with this movie that's so fascinating to all of us is that it's very hard to tell a lot of the time where the, the boundaries between sound and music are. Just as it's, I think, hard to tell where the boundaries between you know the editing of the film and the shooting of the film are, it feels like this like very cohesive statement, uh, and I think that's part of why it, it just works so well. Um, it was very intentional. Um, that, that was part of Denis' discussion with us about Compose with Sound. Our collective goal was to erase those borders. Our, our goal was to have the soundtrack feel as though it was just the sound of Blade Runner. It, we, we didn't want the divisions of music and design or sound effects to be apparent because, you know, I think that's distracting subconsciously to the audience. You, you make those mental notations of great piece of music, great cool sound effect. When you erase the borders, it, 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 it aids in the suspension of disbelief. And I, I think we were pretty successful in creating what I, I call one soundtrack. You know, they, they, they're, they're, I find it arrogant that when the album for a movie is released, it's called the soundtrack. I, I think that's a bit of a land grab. <laughs> that's a great point. Because the soundscape of a film, especially a film like 2049, is, is just as much and sometimes more a part of the narrative cohesion of it uh, than the music. And, and in this case, I mean, and I, I have to, t I know that this is the Blade Runner podcast, but um, uh, just Fury Road to me, is, there are two films in the last 10 years that I have stood up and applauded for at the end, and they were Fury Road and 2049. Wow. And to me, both of those films, the sounds are just absolutely an integral part of the, of the fabric of the piece. And I, yeah. I think um, in 2049, you know, I, 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 we, on an earlier episode, at some point, I had said that um, I knew it was going to be a great film within 30 seconds of it, and uh, and that had to do with two things. Um, well, one was just the incredible cinematography, obviously, which you know we have talked yeah. a lot about. You can just. Oh yeah, but um, the so the flyover, you hear the spinner, and the spinner just sounds, and I want to talk about that obviously too. It just sounds absolutely amazing, and then when Sapper unplugs his helmet. His like uh -huh. you know protein farm thing, <laughs> whatever noise that was is just so perfectly mixed, and I remember hearing that and being like, oh my god, they paid attention to this movie, like oh my god, because it, it, can I ask just briefly if you it, what is the sound uh, of Sapper's helmet being unplugged? Do you remember? The, I, I don't because it was something that uh, Lee Gilmore, one of our sound designers, made, but uh, as I just as he's pulling it out of the back. Yeah, it kind of goes like he's disconnecting it. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's a vacuum cleaner hose being okay. pulled. It's like spunk. And, yeah, you know, exactly. It, and it's such a minor like, moment that in so many movies, I wouldn't wouldn't even have registered to me. But because of the way it was mixed into the sound mix overall, I just uh -huh. I just could hear it so clearly projected. And I was like, the attention to detail of this film. If if they can make a moment like that feel like noticeable and beautiful, then I mean, imagine what they can do. And of course, the rest of it is you know. We don't even have to talk about that here because we've spent so many hours talking about it. But, um, but briefly, the question that I had earlier was: uh, Are there are there moments within the film, from a sound design and a sound uh, editing standpoint, that to you felt like brave decisions, like atypical choices, things that that were not what you would have done in a different project, but because you had the leeway with with Villeneuve being such a empathetic collaborator, you felt like you could really take a chance on. I think they're all through the film, and, and they 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 harken back to this idea of us composing with sound. There's there's a lot of areas in this film that 
Denis gave us the film with no music and and he edits with no music for a, a good length of time because he wants to know that a scene lives on its own merits before music comes in like the cavalry to kind of save it if you need that mm-hmm. you know that extra emotional lift he wants to make sure that he directed the actors correctly and the editor found the essence of a scene correctly before he applies music so his early goal for us to compose with sound was to um have us attack the film with no music in it and see what scenes worked without any music at all. And that's a lot of scenes in this film. And once we had built that roadmap, once we had laid up this, you know, uh, the way I approach this film is I, I use a Pro Tools, it's a digital audio workstation, and um, I had created all these um, sound compositions. I just talked about one of them with the chimes. Those were all made... Um, kind of as a, a studio experiment. I didn't do this to film. I just made set compositions that I like. And then my approach was kind of like a, 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 an expressionist painting. I kind of bombed the, 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 the Pro Tools session with these three minute long compositions and just kind of saw how they fell on the movie and where they made emotional connections and where they didn't. And I moved around huge blobs of sound across the entire three hour film until we found things that worked. We, I'd present those to, need, to, to, to Denis and he'd sign off on some of them and that became the Blade Runner sound and then he gave that to Ben and Hans and said, here's what sound has done, work with that, work in and around that. So I think from a sound editorial standpoint, um, you know, where normally our work is seen as this sort of diegetic exercise of, well, there's a sound on the screen, you gotta color it in, you gotta fill it like a coloring book. Oh, there's a blaster, got to put in the sound of the blaster and you color it in. And when you're done, you're done when all the lines are colored in. We did something very different from that. We colored way outside the lines to kind of put stuff out in the borders and the periphery. And uh, that was a very different approach, sound editorially speaking, than the way most movies work. Can I ask you, uh, what was... Was there a, a specific scene or moment that was challenging for you guys? That was like not not to say that. I mean, I know that you do this, and this is kind of a part of the work that you do. So maybe there isn't a challenge. You just meet it and you do it. But was there a moment or a scene that you're, as you said, kind of coloring outside the lines that you thought, okay, this is a big scene, and this is going to require a lot. Um, was there a moment like that for you while working on Twenty Forty Nine? You know, not really. The biggest, there were very few challenges because we approached the film so methodically. We were given a great deal of time, much more than sound is normally given to experiment and find the movie. And, you know, as with everything, you know, your first iteration of something goes in front of the director. He doesn't like it, but you get notes and you improve. And that was a very orderly and smart process. The, the, the biggest and really only challenge that I remember was creating the sound of the spinner. It was something that Denis, you know, just rejected iteration after iteration on until we finally landed on uh, an amalgam of sounds that that he was happy with. But it, we were quite frustrated. It was the one of the earliest projects to start on because VFX had already started to create it, and there was a lot of visual information from production that was already there with, you know, uh, spinners that were on like um, articulated uh, gimbals and arms. Um, and he just didn't like much at first, so it took a long time to get that sound. Everything else went unbelievably well. 
it's funny because we just had a spinner episode last week, and, and uh, as part of that, we were going through some of the production notes, and that was the first object in the movie that Denis requested be designed because he wanted to get a lot of the aesthetic from that. So it's funny yeah. that not only was it one of the first things designed, it was also one of the first things produced and one of the first things sound designed as well. So yeah. I think that was a really <laughs> integral thing for him. Yeah, right. Well, it's, uh, I, you know, it's one of those kind of, uh, you know, it's the connective tissue to the first movie. It's one of the most identifiable objects from the first movie. Yeah. Can I, can I ask, uh, initially, what did you want it to sound like? Like, what was rejected initially? <laughs> Do you remember? Uh, it's not so much what the sounds that I used that were rejected, but it was really the technique I was using. Um, I wanted it to be a, a what we call in the vernacular a signature sound. I wanted it to be as recognizable as the TIE Fighters in Star Wars or the Millennium Falcon. I wanted it to be a sound you'd remember in your mind's ear after you let the left the film. And this is where I butted heads with Denis. <coughs> Denis' con <coughs> Denis, um, uh, constant refrain was, I want it to sound banal. I, I, I don't want it to feel like something. I want it to, in fact, one time he said, I want it to sound like a lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> but is one area where that sort of very healthy push and pull between two artists in a film had had a great result because it was one of the few areas where I really pushed back on that and I'm really happy with what we ended up achieving. At the end of the day, the sound of the spinner is made up from three uh, unique components. The first is a, um, a bull roarer, which is a, uh, an indigenous instrument that you spin over your head and it makes this voom, 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 voom sound. So we, we love that kind of timbre and that envelope, but it didn't, you couldn't make that into a vehicle without a lot of manipulation because you need sounds of it taking off and landing and flying by and hovering and all those things. So it took a great deal of sound manipulation to um, kind of twist it into shape. Um, it was underpinned with, as I remember, a four, like a, just a, like a V8 Ford Mustang, like a hot, like a Mustang GT350. Like a with, five liter low, yeah, yeah like a, with yeah. a deep low and that, tonal. yeah, that gives you the deeper kind of puts the balls on it. Yep. And then when you're inside of it, it's the sound of my wife's Honda Element. What we did was Denis had said, since we are thirty years hence, right? We're thirty years hence, twenty nineteen to twenty forty nine. Um, everything is in a little bit of disrepair since the blackout, and right. there aren't spare parts around, so all of these spinners are falling apart. So he said he wanted it to feel like that. And I remembered my very first car, a 62 Volkswagen Beetle in Sudbury, rusted out from, you know, 40 winter. The winters. snow and the salt, yeah. Drive it and the fenders would rattle and the door panels were, would rattle. Right. And this is so what we did was my wife has an old Honda Element, an SUV, and we put a subwoofer inside of it, a huge one, a 15-inch subwoofer, and wow. drove drove it with subsonic frequencies. We fed it with like 20 cycle sound to excite the interior so, so that everything in the thing would shake. And we put seven microphones in there so we had this nice immersive array. And so every time you're on the inside of the spinner, you feel a cabin that's just going Oh my God, that's so cool because that's exactly what it sounds like, especially when he's flying over the junkyard. Um, yeah, that was, just, that was that a lot point. of the, yeah, that was that stuff. It's, and it's but totally believable. Is, yeah. My sound designer partner, Theo Green, 
he did this from his iPhone. We, we fed the output of his iPhone had a, a, an oscillator, something that feeds a pure signal. And so we drove the vibrations based on the scene like we knew when he was speeding up and slowing down. So he'd increase and decrease the frequency of the subwoofer depending on the scene by driving the oscillator. So it's a geeky but, thing. But that oscillator was outputting a subsonic frequency, you said, so it wouldn't come across like... It's anywhere between 20 cycles and about 80 cycles. Okay, All of so those... Low. yeah. Super, not subsonic, not beyond hearing, but deep, the kind of stuff that you'd hear in the subwoofer. Right. But right. the goal, what we ended up filtering out the subsonic sound because all we wanted was to hear the vibration, which is a very audible sound. We just wanted to hear the, the rattles inside the car. Oh, that's so cool. So then you would EQ it, so you get rid of the low stuff, and then you'd keep the rattling, and then you'd merge that with the with the with, engine with the elements sound. engine running or with that Mustang E engine. Well, they were all layered together. There was so those three okay. plates simultaneously. So can I can I ask just a practical question? Because bull roars are, I've used those in a lot of things too. They're amazing. Anybody listening to this, pick up a bull roar. They're like $2 and they're like incredibly <laughs> cool objects yeah. that are used yeah. for communicating at long distances in the outback. Um, ah. and kids, kids love them too. How did you mic that? Because cause it creates so much wind and it moves around so much. Can I just ask? Uh, we had several recordings of it. Um, some were just an XY recording with somebody spinning it in front of the microphones. But we also did a quad recording with them in each corner of a quiet studio so that the tip of the cat and nine tail would spin over you know, a microphone in a circle so you'd get this voo, 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 voo. So because you get this proximity, yeah. yeah, and that's what we want. We like that that envelope of of kind of um, what do you call it? Uh, what's that? I'm trying to remember the plugin I used that does the same thing. To just to create these sort of up and down, this undulation. Right, right. That is so almost like a low pass filter or something like that. No, that is, no, it was it was no. more creating envelope with. Um, Oh, there's a Waves plugin that we used that was really handy that just, um, it's like a, you use an LFO to drive it, but the LFO is driving a gate. So the gate is selectively opening and closing. So right, right. put a steady state sound, if you put this, this LFO across, it goes like that. Oh my God, so cool. <laughs> as, a, as a sound geek, that's, that's absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> I want to uh, ask a, uh, you know, as we're getting close to the end here, I have a question for you. Um, how has the nature of your work changed in the era of digital cinema? Because I know you've been doing this for a long time, but four decades. Forty two Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a long time. And you've done some absolutely incredible work across very many different genres. You've done you know everything from Aladdin, which you were nominated for an Oscar for, to Twenty Forty Nine, you know, and everything in between. Um, yeah. I'm wondering now that we're in this era of these extremely elaborate digital sound systems. How, is, how have you found the nature of your job changing, and what are your expectations for going forward about how sound will continue to play a role in theatrical presentations? I suppose the the if we're talking about um, you know the the advent of immersive sound systems in theaters, um, that has given us an, a new tool to work with to immerse the audience, to make them feel even more a part of um, the movie. And so, 
You know, the goal of filmmaking for all of us is to suspend disbelief. You walk into a theater and subconsciously you know this didn't really happen and it's the filmmaker's job to prove you wrong. And one of the ways to do that is to use sound to recreate a reality or a fabricated reality. A reality meaning if it's a present day movie, you, you want to try to make the audience feel as though they're actually in a, the sonic reality that they experience in real life. With immersive sound systems with you know lots of speakers all around you, you can start to approximate the 360 experience of how we hear in real life, thus enabling the suspension of disbelief. So part of my job has changed in how I approach creating this sort of 360 degree envelopment of the audience. Now, how do I present sound that is all around us but isn't distracting me so that I think, oh, there's a sound in the surrounds. So there's this sort of psychoacoustic thing going on that I'm trying to do employ to simply place an audience in a, in, in a position being so comfortable with sound, they're signing off on it more quickly. So does that answer your question? That's one of the it things. It does, it does. I, I guess I'm, I'm also wondering though, do you, do you, where do we go next from here in terms of like technical presence? Cause, cause I, like, for example, we saw, uh, there's a brand new theater in Boston that just opened up uh, that is, uh, it's like completely, like everything is like 4K digital projection, the sound system, I don't even know what it was, but it felt like there were 4,000 channels. It was like this incredible, and it was a small room with very low ceiling in a very controlled sonic environment. And we saw yeah. Annihilation, which, have you seen Annihilation yet? I mean, yet. Oh my God, it's so good. It's so, it's so good. Um, <laughs> and it was just this, it was almost overwhelming, the sense of of reality, verisimilitude. Um, Ver that's, that's the key word, verisimilitude. I was just going to yeah. talk about well, and that's what I'm wondering about. Like, where, where do we go from here? You know, like, what, what's next? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Um, and I'm going to put in a shameless plug. Um, I, I just started a new company to explore a very revolutionary sound technique that actually recreates how the ear hears 360-degree audio. You know, traditional immersive audio is pretty darn good, but everything is stuck to the walls. The one thing that traditional audio cannot reproduce that we use as an auditory cue is proximity. The technology that I'm developing with a professor from Princeton, and we call our process Anthos, um, I can make it sound like somebody's whispering right in your ear in your cinema seat. So we can actually more accurately reproduce now 360 degree sound, 3D space with audio in ways we could never do before. And so the reason we're doing that is that we are endeavoring to create verisimilitude. Now, that word is dangerous because Blade Runner 2049 isn't real, but it's a reality we're trying to convince you of. So there is verisimilitude in the conceit of a science fiction film. So every film that I work on, that we work on, our goal is to create verisimilitude to aid in the suspension of disbelief. So technology is moving in that direction to create the more and more lifelike experience of how we experience the, wor the real world. So what do, what do you think will happen when we reach a point where it feels binaurally completely believable? You don't even question that what you're experiencing is real. Where do you go from there? Say tw in twenty or thirty years, what do you think the next evolutionary step will be? I really for sound, question. Or, for sound or movies in general. For sound, for sound. Well, if, if we can actually achieve uh, genuine verisimilitude, then 
that that kind of um, that goal is met. You know, the the bigger challenge is not the technical one. The bigger challenge is the narrative one. How do we tell stories better with sound? You know, immersion. Um, you know, you can have all the speakers in the world, but um, if you don't put compelling content in them, my favorite analogy is uh, uh, not attending to content in an in, in a immersive theater is like ordering pizza that is delivered in a limousine. <laughs> Once you eat the pizza, it's just pizza. Doesn't matter how it got to you. Right. And and, and so the same holds true for for us. Our job as artists. Uh, is never complete and will never be complete. We will. There is an endless supply of ideas in stories and in sound uh, to compel an audience. So that that journey will never stop, no matter how sophisticated the reproduction systems get. Amazing. Uh, I have I have one more question I wanted to ask. I want to open the floor. Oh, you want? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, do you have anything you want to sneak in before we close up here? Um. You guys are really covering most of the bases. I, I'm just a little bit curious. Um, in terms of your inspiration, what inspires you? What inspires you to create your work? Of course, I know that there's a director, and whether it's 2049 or it's other films, what wakes you up to inspire you to do what you do? There's a lot. I mean, there's the, the little Geppetto in me. There's this Italian craftsman that has to make something beautiful and put it on a shelf, whether anyone likes it or not. It, all that matters is the, you know, being lost in art and craft. Um, I love, uh, I love making people love sound. I love guys like you who come back to me and say, man, really dug your work. That's, that, that's deep inspiration when people are moved by the art that I create. Um, I just, I, you know, I, I, this is what I love to do. I, I do this because I love it, not because I have to do it. I love, I, I'm 42 years and I'm still looking forward this morning to go into the studio to attack a reel that I, of the movie I'm working on. So I, I love the challenge of it. Uh, inspir you know, I, my early inspiration, I started life as a, as a cartoon sound effects editor. My first gig was at Hanna-Barbera Studios making cartoon sound effects. And my idols were uh, Jimmy McDonald and Treg Brown. Uh, Jimmy, um, the great uh, sound designer uh, for Disney cartoons, started with Walt in the 40s. And uh, Treg Brown, the great sound designer, editor for the, the Looney Tunes shorts for Warner Brothers. Those guys are heroes to me. And I think they, they showed us, they modeled how to do this, you know, 50 years ago by showing that when you take a sound out of its context and you recontextualize it, when you use sound as in a metaphorical sense, that's the essence of design. And they did it with acoustic sounds. You know, why should an inertia starter be the sound of a Tasmanian devil spinning around? Why, <laughs> why should popping your finger in a Coke bottle be the sound of the, the roadrunner's tongue flicking out? The, 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 the insane, you know, illogical connections they made sonically are alive and, alive and well today and tried and true techniques of great sound designers. Now, those guys were inspiration to me. Oh, and, of so course, so Ben Burt. I mean, what really launched me on this was seeing Star Wars in 1977. I was a, a first-year sound editor at Hanna-Barbera, and I, and I heard 
he blew my mind with sound. He showed us all how sound can tell stories, and I thought, that's what I want to do. I'm going there. Star Wars, to this day, still, in my opinion, holds up as one of the most sonically fascinating films, the original one especially. It's just, there, there are so many atypical design choices being made, and they're done in such a believable way that yeah. it's so transportative. And, and it's like, yeah, you can totally see just the generations of influence that Ben Burt has had now. And um, I just think it's it's amazing. And I, and I truly mean this, Mark, when I say that I think people will be talking about 2049 and Fury Road and other of your films as well in the future as being huge inspirations for them. Um, I, I feel like your work completely stands up to that echelon of greatness. I'm so thrilling. I must say, um, this award season, I was I, I got the thrill of a lifetime, though I didn't win. Um, a gentleman by the name of Gary Rizzo won for Dunkirk, and he came up to me many years ago and said to me, you are the reason I got in the business. There we and, go. And to see, you know, uh, to, to see him win was it was so satisfying. It, it really made me happy. I was really so proud great. that I had an influence on someone. That's that's pretty great. Yeah. The, the, the last thing before we sign off, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we have this unique opportunity to talk to one of the great sound people in Hollywood. And I'm wondering, what is the best single sound edited, sound designed film that you can recommend everybody listening to this podcast go out and listen to? Not including your own work, although your own work obviously would be on that list. What's a film that people might not think about that you feel like is just uh, at the absolute pinnacle of what you can do with sound? There are a lot, but the first one that I thought of was Forbidden Planet, made in 1956 or 1957, because oh, yeah. they, they did an amazing thing. They, they consigned the entire soundtrack to a, a, a team, B.B. and Louis Barron, a team of uh, avant-garde electronic music composers who designed a track that we, I think we came close with Blade Runner 2049, but... But nothing like what they did. You listen to that track, you don't know, is it score, is it sound effects? It doesn't even matter. It's just the sound of that planet. And it's just, and it was all made by these two, this crazy husband and wife team with analog circuits designed to self-destruct. Right, right. And like, yeah. There were dying circuits, as they yeah, called Yeah, stochastic dying circuits, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that on a future episode. Uh, <laughs> sure. Because that's, that's amazing, yeah. Well, Mark, I, I just I want to thank you again so incredibly much for your contributions to film and for giving us so many things to listen to and and relish and for making time for us in your busy schedule. This has been a conversation I will never forget, and I can't wait for our <laughs> listeners to hear it. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for listening. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>